0: Hey, since it worked so well last week, and we only have one more week of this, I thought it would be helpful for us to, again, uh, start by thinking about our mission statement. So I'd love for you uh, to repeat it as you know it. I hope you do. All right? We exist as a church, Compass Bible Church exists to reach people for Christ, teach people to be like Christ, and people to... Ah, that's good. All right. I love it. Uh, That is so important for us to understand, like I've iterated before and I'll reiterate again, uh, many churches get into scuffles and conflict, they get into a lot of problems simply because people show up into uh, a church facility uh, and they really don't know what they're doing here. And it's not that they don't have the capacity to know what we're doing here, but simply said, they just don't know what the church is here for. And it's important for us to understand the mission of our church uh, because it keeps us focused on on the right direction. And it allows us to prioritize the main things and it allows us to look past tertiary things, tertiary differences, things that aren't getting us on the road uh, to fulfilling that mission. And so last week we undertook the task of thinking rightly about reaching people for Christ in that evangelistic fervor. Uh, and the flavor that that goes with thinking about evangelism through the lens of Psalm 96. Uh, This week, I would love us to think about that second part of our mission statement, that we exist to teach people to be like Christ. Ever since the foundation of the church, we see in Acts 2, uh, God has entrusted faithful men uh, as heralds and and as uh, carriers of this message uh, to go and to preach clearly and soundly uh, what Christ has called us to understand, to know, and to apply to our life, namely the truth of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 uh, says it this way, that uh, these apostles, the prophets, uh, the, the pastor teachers are to equip the saints for the, for the work of ministry until they reach mature manhood. And so even that concept that as we're teaching people to be like Christ, particularly when we think of the teaching ministry of the church, we're thinking through Ephesians 4 of saying The goal in the work of the teaching ministry of the church is to bring people to maturity in their faith, both right thinking and right living according to the word of God, empowered through the Holy Spirit. Now, you see how that's very, very important if we're thinking about the ministry of our church. This has to be a main focus and thrust of of the church is that we are a teaching ministry. Like we we understand that when you go to a school and you put your kids in school, uh, whatever you think about school is is not the point here. Uh, the schooling, if you take them to school, you're saying you're going to go learn. Arithmetic. You're going to learn reading. You're going to learn writing. You're going to learn history. You don't take the kids. You don't put them in school uh, for them to uh, learn how to, uh, I don't know, rodeo. If you're from Texas, you're like me. Okay. All right. Uh, You don't go to send them to school so they would learn things outside the parameters of what that means to be enrolled. Okay. And unfortunately, I think one of the big problems in the church in our day is the pressures of culture... One. And two, uh, just the the unguided nature of a church with no mission uh, presses upon the church to be a lot of things that it was never meant to be. And we fix that by being a church that understands that the church movement, that is, ever since the book of Acts, ever since even the Great Commission, as Christ commissions the disciples, this is a teaching ministry. The church is a teaching ministry. There may be other things that go around that and auxiliaries of the church, but the church is primarily, in its very nature, a ministry of teaching. We know things about Christ. We have responded to the good news of the Teaching of the gospel from the Messiah, handed down to the apostles, foretold by the prophets, given to entrusted faithful men to go preach that message all the way through the church age as we await for the coming of Christ. You see, without the teaching ministry, there is no organizational body when it comes to the need for us to gather, to disseminate truth, to go out. The teaching ministry is fundamental. To the local church. And we cannot escape it, nor should we, because that's what Christ has commanded us to do. Go into the world, make disciples, teaching them. Go, Ephesians 4, your pastors, your teachers, ought to equip the saints for the work of ministry until they reach complete manhood. That idea is about teaching, that we are a teaching ministry. We can sum up the importance of this work with our preaching point this morning, which is this. The effective teaching ministry of the church relies on pastors who cleave to the Word of God as the indispensable tool for sound teaching and faithful leadership. This, you recognize, even if you can't put your thumb on it, you see out there in the world, churches, by and large, almost without exception, rise and fall on pastoral leadership. You can think of the churches that are really, really healthy, and you look behind the pulpit, you look at the leaders and the pastors of that church, and you say, healthy pastors, healthy church. You go, likewise, go find unhealthy churches, unhealthy ministries. You can look behind the pulpit, you can look at the staff page of the pastors, and by and large, what you're going to find is an unhealthy staff, unhealthy pastoral leadership, right? Uh, You you know, sometimes when I preach and and you're like, oh, this pricks you, this pricks me, all right? I'm talking about us here, the pastors of the church. And we want to see healthy churches, and healthy churches have to have healthy pastors preaching the Word of God accurately, which is really what we see, the implications of what Paul is saying to Titus in the New Testament in the letter to Titus, and I'd love for you to turn with me there to Titus chapter 1. A little bit of background on this. Paul is sending this letter to Titus, one of, one of his disciples who has followed him faithfully. And he's in Crete, which is a small island there off in the Mediterranean Sea. And, and uh, even historically, Crete was known as this epicenter for uh, military training. And uh, you know like the culture of a lot of military bases, right? It can be a little rugged, a little rough, uh, a lot of times hard to find godliness there. Uh, In the same way, in Crete they had the same problems. Like Crete was a a rough place, and Paul has Titus there, and he tells him, "You need to put in order what what is left to uh, to organize." particularly in church leadership. Like you need to go and you need to find faithful men who are qualified and called, and you need to place them, those elders, in leadership in the churches there in Crete. And then Paul continues going on there in Titus 1, talking about these qualifications. Right, There are character qualifications, there are moral qualifications, and there are, are uh, qualifications having to do with the competency particularly when it comes to teaching the Word of God, which is really what we're going to zoom into this morning as we're looking at one verse in particular, verse 9. And as Paul writes this letter to Titus, He's saying you need, to, you need to appoint qualified elders, they need to have good sound doctrine, they need to be able to teach it well, and they need to be able to uh, correct those who contradict it. Uh, because all of this is not just so that there is some kind of right teaching only, but that that right teaching, if you continue reading in the book of Titus, leads to right living. Because they're applying the healthy teaching, and it is it is transforming the lives of the people in or those who would be a part of healthy churches, which is exactly what you see in the rest of Titus. It's amazing when you read through the book of Titus how many times it says things like good work, being fruitful, uh, living a particular kind of way because of the message that has been preached. And so with all of that being said, what I would love us to do is we zoom in, as we think about teaching people to be like Christ, that we just look here at one verse, verse 9 in Titus 1. We expose it, let's parse it, let's look at it and think uh, how our church ought to apply this and and help us as we uh, come to uh, affirm our mission statement and and desire to fulfill that mission statement. So if you will, let's look there, the first part of verse 9. Paul says here to Titus that the uh, overseer, that elder, right? Uh, These words, these synonymous words we get for the, the leaders, that office of pastor, overseer, elder, episkopos, poyman, presbyteros, those synonymous words talking about that office of pastoral, elder, overseeing leadership in the church, uh, among other qualifications, here is a competency that, that these men must have. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. That word there, hold firm, also be rendered devoted or that he would cleave to these things. I like that word devoted because that same Greek word is used in another familiar passage that'll help you understand what Paul means when he says Devoted, And you see that in Matthew 6, 24. You should jot that down. Maybe in your notes you can jot down Matthew 6, 24 and just put devoted out beside that as you're writing a note for Titus 1, 9 as well. Uh, It's important when you look at verse 24 of Matthew 6 to look at the context that this same Greek word is used. Jesus says, "'No one can serve two masters, "'for either he will hate the one and love the other,' Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You've heard it, right? You cannot serve God and money. Same Greek word, devoted. Right? And, and so the gist here is like, like a greedy man, he's greedy for money. Right? A, a man who's greedy for money is willing to do anything for money, and he's willing to do whatever he can to get a hold of it, and he's willing to do anything that he can so he doesn't have to let go of it. Right? Bad topic, wonderful word picture. This idea that the men that God has called to spread the word of God, particularly through the office of pastor and overseer, must have this unwavering, cleaving position when it comes to the word of God that he's devoted to it. He would forsake any other thing and devote himself to the trustworthy word of God, that he would be devoted to it. He'd cleave to it. I mean, not the same Greek word or even the the same sense, but even that idea that we get in Genesis and Ephesians of this idea that I'm going to leave and cleave to my spouse, different senses, but even that idea of saying, we have to, and you have to, you must have teachers who are willing to forsake the world, forsake culture, forsake the philosophies of the world, and say, here's what we must have a competency in, holding firm, being devoted to the word of God, despising the other, holding fast to the word of God, because your, your pastors cannot serve Christ through serving you and serving the world and the opinions and philosophies of the world. It is the word of God that we must hold firm to, and it is that, as we see in the text, the trustworthy word as taught. That word trustworthy comes from the word pistis, which is where we get faith and trust. Like The same, way, the same word is the word we get when we say, hey, you need to trust in Christ. You trust in Christ, same word, pastuo, the idea that you need to entrust yourself to Christ for the salvation of your sins. We have the same family of words here where we're saying that this word isn't just a word that's just above all the other words, it's just a better word. We're saying, no, no, this is, this is the faithful word, that word which leads us to understanding the truth of the gospel, the truth of God as he's revealed himself to us. We can know God through this trustworthy word as, as it's been taught. And I want you to notice that. And just right here, the first phrase of verse 9. As has been taught. Right? I, you're never going to hear. I heard a seminary professor say this one time, and I loved it, and I'm going to steal it. You know, He says, you will be glad to hear that nothing new has ever been discovered at this seminary. Think about that. That's a good thing, right? That, that you could go to a, this seminary, and you're going to listen, we're not going to teach you anything new. There is nothing new under the sun. When it comes to the trustworthy word as taught, you're going to hear From our seminary, the historical Christian doctrines as taught from the prophets, the apostles, Christ Jesus being that cornerstone. And through all the faithful men that we're raising up, we're teaching them to hold firm to the trustworthy word as it has been taught. Here at our church, you're not going to get a new word. I don't, you know, I've heard pastors even say that. I got a new word for you today. I don't have a new word for you. I have the historical word of God that has been preserved for us, has been handed down and entrusted to faithful men who would entrust that also to other faithful men in our church uh, who would go and make disciples of all nations, disseminating that uh, through their families and through their households and and to the nations. And that's what we're doing here. We aren't going to give you new words. We're going to give you the word that's been historically taught and handed down to us. I hope that has raised your view of the teaching ministry. Has it? I hope it has. As you look at this and you're saying, We're not just gathering here just because, you know, 150, 200 years ago when they came over in the Mayflower, people just decided to get into a church building and start teaching. The Word of God. Now, this is something that we have understood in Scripture as part of the regular patterns of Christian ministry since the institution of the Church. And so, as you're sitting here doing what you're doing right now, sitting under the teaching of God's Word, you're doing something that we've done since Christ came and founded the Church. And there should be a reverence to that, and there should be a respect to that. That we're going to come here, and we're going to uh, we're going to hold in high esteem the teaching ministry of the Church. There's a lot of implications. There are a lot of applications that you must have if you think about this idea of esteeming the teaching ministry of your church. Uh, But what it really amounts to is that we have to have churches that are holding tight and who will teach the Bible faithfully. A lot of implications. We'll get into some of those, but at least put this this as point number one on your outline as we're thinking about this. You need to make sure that you find faithful expositors of the Bible and you plant your family there. You need to find faithful expositors of the Bible and plant your family there. In verse 9, these men who are called, who are qualified, one of the competencies they must have is holding firm, devoted to the Word of God as the trustworthy Word as taught. And you are hoping and you are expecting, I trust, as you are looking for a church, that you are going to find a church who has qualified men, elders in the position and the office of overseer, pastor, who are going to do exactly this. And when you find one of those churches, you need to plant your family there. And even that comes with its own implication, right? Because I can preach to the choir in one sense because you're like, okay, we're here. You know, we we are here. Yeah, you're here, but are you planted here? Like, are you actually involving yourself in the teaching ministry of the church? Do you hold a commitment to not only being here on Sundays, which even that in and of itself is quite a commitment that we must make? Am I making sure that my students are involved in life groups and student ministry during the week? Am I making sure that my kids are in an adventure club because we have curriculum there, which your children will go through all of the systematic theology of Scripture where they can where they too can grow and understand the Word of God in a way where they can, uh, as they grow old, they will not depart from it. You, even as a husband in this room, are thinking about you as your job to lead your home under the teaching of God's Word, that you yourself are being equipped to lead your family. All of that comes from the teaching ministry of the church. Women, Titus 2, which we'll get to, that idea that you, your role, you teach your children. Wouldn't it be great is you think about as you're teaching your children that you would both have good curriculum, that you would have other men who are pouring into your children who are helping your children know what it means to live a godly life in this present age that we find ourselves living in that is going from bad to worse. I mean, all of that helps us understand this need to say, I need to think more highly of the teaching ministry of our church, and I need to prioritize more highly the teaching ministry Of our church. If there's teaching going on at the church, it would probably be a good idea if I found myself there, if at all possible. And I would uh, at least truncate any kind of uh, ideas that I'm going to say I shouldn't be there. I've got other things going on. We need to ask instead uh, there's teaching ministry going on at the church. Uh, God values the teaching ministry of the church as He's put qualified and capable expositors of the word there. It would be wise for me, if at all possible, to find myself in those spheres of teaching and influence that I might too rightly handle the word of truth opposed to blank, right? And that's part of the application of this. You got to be thinking as I'm going to prioritize the word of God being taught, if I'm going to prioritize sitting under faithful expositors of the word of God, am I actually planted there? Do I find myself growing there, being cultivated there, uh, being fertilized there and, and bearing fruit from the teaching of that ministry? Or do I just suffice it to say, no, I found one, and if you ask me where I go, I can point at that place across town. Uh, I don't really go all the time, but I know it's a solid church, and I go when I can. Right? Quite a bit of difference between just identifying a church with faithful expositors and planting your family there. We've got to prioritize this, because even in an illustrative way, we can think about the way that people choose where they live. And I brought this up vaguely before. Uh, but I was watching an advertisement on, uh, on TV the other day, and it was Coldwell Bankers. They have a Move Meter. Has anyone seen the Coldwell Banker Move Meter commercial? Well They have this website, this tool on their website now where it's a Move Meter. So basically you say, here's where I live. And here's where I'm thinking about moving. And then they have these categories that will compare where you live and where you want to go. And some of them are home prices, taxes, education, health care, entertainment, the workforce, all those things. And they compare them and they give it a score and they'll tell you which one rate's higher than the other and if it's a good idea for you to move there. And I kept looking, and I kept searching all through that entire tool, and I couldn't find one single place where good churches were there. Like, there was no like, comparison of, like, are there, are there churches I can go to in this city? There were, they couldn't find them on that tool. To them, it wasn't a priority that there would be solid Bible-teaching churches in those cities as long as you can make enough money. Right? You can go get a check up when you need to. Uh, your, ki- your children can go get educated, particularly as, as many of these tools use in secular places where they're going to teach them things that aren't necessarily true, th- true things about God. We're going we're to say, as long as you do those things, you make money and you don't have to give the government as much of your money, and as, as and long as you can afford a home, that's going to be sufficient for you when it comes to living a happy, successful, faithful life. And we're just going to say, No. Right? that's that's not true. And many people, they go and they say, listen, there's a ton of churches there. there's bound to be to be some churches there. We'll just go to one of those and we'll figure it out as long as all these other things check the box. We can figure out when we get there that there's going to be other churches there, we can find one. And you go to those churches and oftentimes we don't grade the church or discern our part of being planted in that church by the teaching of the Word of God. but whether or not their children's programming is up to my, to, to, up to my expectations. Right? Is the worship minute? does the music, is, does it tickle my ears? I mean, this idea is is the building. Is, is it kind of what I would you know, want people to think, hey, I go to that church. Does it look nice? Is the architecture nice? I mean, are the people friendly, which I think that's a fine thing to think about, but it shouldn't be the primary thing that you think about. Far down on the list, I'm afraid, in many of our our list of the, the kinds of churches that we want to go to is do they have faithful expositors of the Bible who are going to, as Titus 1.9 says, they hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. And I trust that as I sit into that teaching, that myself, my wife, my kids, and my family are going to hear the word taught clearly and trustworthily, truthfully, honestly, transparently. And that, excuse me, That's as we think about verse 9 that we have to say the most important thing about the church is do they handle the word of God rightly? And it's not just, well, you know, I haven't heard them say anything terribly wrong, which you have to be asking the other question, do I hear them saying the things that are right there's, there's a lot of things you can say, but are they saying the right things? Are they preaching the right things? It's not just, hey, I didn't hear them say anything heretical. Did you hear them say anything edifying and encouraging concerning the word of the gospel of Jesus Christ? We need to find faithful expositors of the Bible, and we need to plant our families there. We need to pick our homes. We need to pick our cities based on the faithful preaching of God's word. And here's why. If, you haven't, if, you haven't, if I haven't sold you on this yet, hopefully this does, that teaching doesn't stop in the pulpit, you hear me? Teaching does not stop in the pulpit. Pastors lead churches. Husbands lead their families. Mothers teach their children. Men are teaching men. Women are teaching women. And you hope that you would find a church with substantial Amount of solid teaching that you, the tools that you have to be able to fulfill those teaching responsibilities in your own lives, are uh, substantial enough from your church to be able to take that and say, "Hey, children, what are we learning this week?" Hey, honey, what did we learn from the Word of God this week as we were sitting under the teaching of God's Word, and and on and on and so on and so forth. You need to understand that your teaching ministry of your church doesn't stop in the pulpit. It is taken and disseminated into the church and you are released to also fulfill this part of the mission statement of teaching people to be like christ and you would hope that your church has plenty of resources and plenty of opportunities and avenues for the word to be accurately disseminated and exposited in your presence so you can take that as a substantial meal and also use it to feed your families it's such an important part of the teaching ministry of the church but for that to happen, we need churches that have pastors who are capable and who are willing. Right? There's another thing, right? Capable and willing to preach the truth. And that's the second part of verse 9 here. If you look at Titus 1, verse 9 with me once more. As we have these men who have held fast and firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that there they may be able to give instruction in sound Doctrine. Two words I think are going to be helpful for you to think about these words in a biblical way and not in a cultural way. Number one, the word sound is the Greek word that we get for hygiene. So, sound actually just means healthy, right? If you want to have good hygiene, really what that means is you want to be healthy. You want to have healthy teeth, right? You want to have, uh, you want to have a, healthy, a healthy body. You want to wash your hands. Those things are just the same word here for, for hygiene. What we want is healthy doctrine. So the first word is healthy, and even that second word, doctrine, it's that Greek word didasko, which just means to teach. It means instruction. And so as much as you know, our culture says, I hate doctrine, which again, we're going to get to that in a moment, this idea that I don't want to hear about doctrine, I just want to hear about the gospel. It's Okay, sound doctrine. Teaching is literally what those words mean. And if I'm going to know anything right about the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm going to have to know sound teaching. I'm going to have to love sound doctrine, which is why I just when I hear people say, I don't like doctrine, what you're really saying is, you don't like healthy teaching? You don't like healthy teaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I don't know what to do with somebody who says they don't like doctrine other than maybe what they're really saying is they're parroting a cultural phrase that means not what they think it means they're attaching meaning to it the bible doesn't and instead what we're going to do is say this what this means is you need pastors who are going to give you healthy instruction in the teaching of god's word and i want you to notice one observation in that text that we're giving instruction in sound doctrine it just means that we don't just repeat sound doctrine We we take sound doctrine and we apply it to every sphere of life. I mean, we're giving instruction in sound doctrine. Here's the instructions of how we apply sound doctrine. You see that through the rest of Titus. You, You see, as the pastor, the pastoral qualifications are set forth there in Titus. Right after that, it goes into just a long expose of here's how this is applied to the households, this is how it's applied to the church, and this is the transformation that ought to take place as healthy doctrine is disseminated into the church. As they are taught rightly about sound teaching, and they're given healthy instruction, there's an ability and a propensity for that church to apply sound doctrine to every sphere of their life. Because what we hope and we trust is you're full of the Holy Spirit, and we're preaching the Word of God, that the Word of God would be powerful in such a way that it would enlighten the eyes, it would prick the heart, it would stimulate the mind, and it would move the hearer, you and I, to action. And that's why we talk about, and we're not just just repeating, we're not just parroting sound doctrine. We're instructing in sound doctrine that it would actually uh, transform Uh, and move the hearer to a life lived for the glory of God. It just means that we would apply. and You can sum it up in point number two this way. You need to value Bible teaching that emphasizes personal application. You need to value Bible teaching that emphasizes personal application. And this can rub people the wrong way at certain times, because maybe you've grown accustomed to going to a church that says, This, uh, maybe they're just teaching you, here are the facts of the Bible, right? Here's just what it says, which is a wonderful thing. Uh, But we need to learn how to apply the Word to our life, which does mean in a lot of ways, even like the the imperatives that you see on the screen, if we are instructing people how to apply the Word of God, they come forth in imperatives or commands. Like when when you're here, we're calling you to an action, we're calling you to something, like you've seen even on the screen right now. We want you to value Bible teaching that emphasizes personal application. So in healthy instruction and teaching, we're actually telling you, here's what you need to do now. This is something that you need to now go and live by according to the Word of God. So instead of saying, Bible teaching that emphasizes personal application is good, right? that's not a command, is it? That's an indicative. It's, it's indicating something. It's telling us something It's true. Instead, we're going to say, no, no, it is good Because it's good, you need to value it. That's the command. You see, good, healthy Bible teaching is going to call us to something. It's going to call us to apply something, to live a truth of God's word. Uh, And we see that even in the Great Commission, which is tied directly to our own mission statement. Our mission statement is derived from Matthew 28, 18 through 20. which says this, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see that in verse 20. Teaching them to observe, depending on the translation you have. This is ESV. Other translations say obey. The idea here is we're not just here to teach you that the Bible says something. We're trying to teach you that the Bible says you need to observe or obey or apply what the Word of God says. So we're here saying, we as the teaching ministry of the church, you as an extension of that teaching ministry, as you're making disciples, comes with it the call to teach people to observe all that Christ has commanded them. And there's that promise there at the end that Christ is with us till the end of the age. So the mission doesn't stop. Christ will come get us when that particular part of the mission is over and he will take over. But until then, we have this part of our mission statement that says we're going to go teach people to be like Christ. All the things that he has commanded. It brings me to this. Even as we think of academia, there's this uh, there's this arm of academia in theology called practical theology, which is them studying studying and observing uh, worship, and they're observing things that churches are doing and the theory of them and trying to figure out what is the practical nature and how does that practical nature tie back to the theology of that, uh, which is it's wonderful. It's good for what it is, but it'd be easy just to say this, that all theology is practical theology. Right? All theology is practical theology. There's nothing knowable about God that God has disclosed about himself for you that is not helpful for you and is not necessary for you to do something with. Okay, and that's important when you read the Word of God, because we can't flip through a page and say this has nothing to do with me. There's nothing for me in this passage, because all theology, theology, right? The study of God, theos, ology, study of, science of God, the study of God, the knowingness that we could know God, that He's disclosed Himself to us, and therefore for you and me. All theology is practical theology. Everything in God's Word is meant to teach me something about God and transform me into the image of God as the Holy Spirit is illuminating the text to my eyes and into my heart that I would live according to those words. Now, there are a lot of practical things we can do, particularly as we think about the exposition of God's Word as we're preaching God's Word even here I think it's important as if we value Bible teaching that emphasizes personal application. You know how we know that in the life of our church. If you're in here and you're taking notes, there's a really simple, a very simple uh, valuation of, of how do you think about apl- applying God's word. What do you think about expository preaching? Well, do you take notes? Do you write things down? Do you write the points down? It's a really important part of taking the information and not just nodding our heads to it, but, but writing it down that we can take it, uh, we can consume it, we can digest it, we can think through it, uh, that it would, we can go back to it and look at it later uh, as an extension of the sermon throughout the week. What about completing your application questions? That's another one, right? We don't just want to have the word preached here on a Sunday. We want you to take this with you. We want you to write and fill out your application questions and go prepared to your life group that you can go in there and encourage people in your life group. However, I may be a pastor, but I'm not foolish. How many times do we show up to our life groups with no application questions done? Just shooting from the hip. Just saying, yeah, I didn't really do them, but here's my initial thoughts about it. Well, what about taking time? If we value personal application, they're called application questions. They're derived from the text of Scripture. Why not take the time to apply it to our life that we would have something fruitful to share, not only with our life group, but that we would have a consistent pattern of the word challenging us. Your pastors who are the lead teachers of your church giving you application questions to say, what specific areas this week can you apply this to that help you take the Word of God that has been faithfully taught and taken and instructing you to obey God's Word? How can you do that specifically? That's what your application questions are meant to do. What about a third one? Uh, turning to Bible passages as directed. I mean, sometimes I tell you to jot it down. Sometimes I tell you to turn it down. Turn it down? No, turn it up. Okay. No. Uh, turn, the, turn to a particular text. I mean, all those things so important. If we're going to take and, and emphasize personal application, we need to say, hey, I just want to know what God's Word says. God has given us pastors, in as much as they're teaching God's Word accurately, I want to make sure that, that I'm applying it, which is that final application there. Do you practice the imperatives? I mean, do you come and do we, write the, uh, do we write down the points and have nothing to do with them again until the next Sunday when I come and I write them down again? Or am I really going to look and say, you need to value Bible teaching that emphasizes personal application. If you're gonna value them, there's some implications of that, and you're gonna start taking notes. I mean, maybe even right now, you're not taking notes. Your pastor says, Take notes, and maybe you're like, Okay, let me whip out a pen so I can start taking notes. I mean, even that would show you, Hey, you're applying. Point number two, immediately, and that right there, that is honoring to the Lord, and that is good for you in your soul as you're going to say, if I hear God's Word teaching me something and we apply it as a church in a way that's faithful to the text, I'm just going to do that because I know that's going to be good for me. It's going to be glorifying to God, and ultimately, it's going to do something to fulfill the mission of teaching people to be like Christ, right? And when people walk in, even think about that, when people walk in here and they sit down and I say, turn to Titus 1.9, and they hear, it feels like our building is about to fly away with all of the fluttering pages. People walk in and they say, Woof, I better get a Bible and open up to Titus 1 9 because everybody in here is doing I mean, even that, right? You don't even think about it, but your part in expanding the teaching ministry of our church says, We take seriously the word of God here and we open up our Bibles to Titus 1 verse 9. Are you with me? Right? You see, even that, you're not even big. that's not even hard for you to do very necessary for our church if we're going to take seriously that part of teaching people to be like Christ. Because I don't want to teach people to be like me. I want to teach people to be like Christ and only to be like me in as much as I imitate Christ is what Paul says and teaches others to imitate him as he imitates Christ. So with that being said, it is good to apply the words that your pastors are teaching as long as they are in line with God's Word. There's a a final phrase in verse 9 that is very uncomfortable, and sometimes I wish that there was another pastor up here uh, teaching these parts of the text because it's it's difficult, although necessary, for your pastors to uh, say things like we see here in the rest of verse 9. And so as we look at it, let's humbly go to it together as pastors, congregation, and look at it and say, what is God's Word teaching us about this? There's another job, a competency that the pastors have to have as they're teaching the Word of God, as they're exemplifying the teaching ministry of the church, and it's found there in Titus 1, the last phrase in verse 9, that they would also rebuke those who contradict it. And so that word rebuke means to literally to expose, to expose, to reprove, to convict Those are the meanings of that word there to rebuke those who contradict the sound teaching of God's word. Now, there's a couple of ways that people will contradict the sound teaching of God's word. One of them I think you understand pretty clearly. It's the idea that the Bible says this thing, and I say I don't agree with it, and I'm going to do another thing. Right? That's the easiest one to think about, uh, which obviously, yes, your, your pastors need to be able to understand and learn sound doctrine. But they also need to know... False doctrine, they also need to be able to say, well, that is patently false, historically false, and the Bible actually says something completely different. There's another kind of contradiction that is much more uh, apparent in the local church, much more apparent, although we do have false teachers that come in from time to time, we do have people who have false ideas about Scripture that we correct from time to time, which I'm sure you've run into yourself, but there is, is a much more pervasive contradiction that we see in the life of our church. And those, it's those who are contradicting the word in practice. Right? Those who may have right uh, theology. Uh, but and when they are very orthodox, their orthodoxy is right on, but their orthopraxy is off. Right? They don't have right practice. They don't have healthy practices. They know something about the word of God, but they're not applying it. It's in that way too that the pastor is to expose, to reprove, to convict those who contradict the word of God through what through belief and through orthopraxy, through right practice, or in their case, wrong practice that is brought into alignment with right practice. You think that can ruffle feathers? You're like, no, no. We're all completely open to rebuke, right? We're all completely open to somebody telling me what I'm doing wrong, right? We're all just really comfortable with that. Actually, we welcome it, right? As a church, We're all just completely open to everything. Teach you how to raise your kids, right? Teach you what the best, uh, what the best way for you to lead your home is. I mean, all those things, we're going to say, yeah, completely open to you telling me exactly what I'm supposed to do in all those areas, no, right? I mean, that's, that's a place that we're all saying, oof, okay, this is going to get tricky here, all right? This is getting dicey. If we're all being honest, this gets to the uncomfortable part of the sermon because solid Bible teaching is meant to expose, reprove, and convict those who contradict it. It's meant to, as we read before, give instruction in sound teaching, which is wonderful because we all want that, but it's also meant to tell us what we're not what we're not doing according to the word of God to expose the contradictions of the word uh, of people's beliefs and their practices now a couple of a couple of things we should think about if we're looking at this text one there's a couple of problems that arise one the unskilled preacher can injure parishioners can injure the members of our church by exposing uh, them, by reproving, by convicting them, by wounding them, if you will, without giving them the ointment needed for the, for the piercing, for the wound, right? An unskilled preacher can, can most likely tell you what you're doing wrong, but not give you the proper ointment to seal that wound and to get that thing taken care of. I mean, you can think of a shepherd. A good shepherd is going to correct the sheep, but it's also going to give them the necessary care for the wound that has been necessarily inflicted. And the unskilled preacher uh, can cause a a lot of harm and injury to the church if they take this verse and they recognize that they have no responsibility even when it comes to their own rebuke and uh, their own need to be exposed and reproved and convicted. And I know we like that part, but you also have a part in this too, right? The disobedient parishioner, the the disobedient member of the church can hurl insults at the pastors who are here being faithful to God's Word uh, simply because... They don't want to obey the hard teaching of God's Word. They don't want to be corrected. And simply because the preachers are teaching sound doctrine and rebuking contradictory living, people who do not want to abide by the sound teaching of Scripture are apt to create conflict in the church, are much more, they have a high propensity to say, well, that pastor's wrong and I think he's awful and terrible. When what the real problem is, is no, the word of God is very sharp and it has sharp edges and it pierces us and we must understand uh, that the word of God will expose and reprove and convict those who are contradicting either right understanding of God's word or uh, wrong understanding of God's word and wrong practice of God's word. So what's the solution, right? We both see the unskilled pastors can cause a lot of problems, but also uh, parishioners, members of the church who aren't willing to sit under the teaching of God's Word uh, can cause a lot of harm as well. So we can all do a lot of, have a lot of problems as we look at this text if we don't handle it rightly. So what's the solution? The simple solution is to understand biblical authority in the church. It's, it's a right way to understand this, and we all have to understand it, right? So let's do that. One, the head of the church is Christ, right? We see that. We see that in the epistles. We see that even as Christ has come to found the church. We see that Christ is the the head of the church. We see it in Colossians. We see it in Ephesians. His words are are final, right? So we're we're all accountable to the word of God, your pastors included, right? And this is something I want you guys to internalize real well, I think, as your members of our church, that your pastors are accountable to the word of God. And as a matter of fact, pastors have more accountability to the Word of God for their sheer stewardship of the exposition of God's Word alone. Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever, have you ever been a message where you're like, I'm glad I don't have to go preach that this morning? you ever done that you haven't maybe you should think when we when we have messages and and maybe there's a sin or something you're struggling with uh and you're like i'm glad i don't have to get up there and talk about that and how i should have to repent from that and change my life's direction because of that particular thing i mean even just when we're thinking about the exposition of god's truth alone we're recognizing your pastors have a a higher accountability because of the sheer stewardship alone right and that's just the stewardship of getting up and saying We're not going to be hypocrites. We're going to practice what we preach. Are we going to be perfect? Okay. I I wanted you to say that. All right. Okay. All right. We're not going to be perfect, but it is something that, as we prepare our messages every single week, as we look at God's Word, we're stared in the face every single day. As we open up God's Word, and as we're preparing to bring this before the congregation, it preaches to us and it penetrates us and it exposes us far before it ever reaches the pulpit of our churches. And that should be something that you would think about in your own uh, part of membership of, of a good church. James 3.1 right, says, and you can jot that down, James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. According to what? According to whom? Well, I think that's twofold. Uh, obviously we understand that the the greater strictness that we are to be judged primarily is before God. You know that your pastors are going to have a stricter judgment before God when it comes to carrying uh, as the the office of elders in the church, the teaching ministry of the church. As we stand before God, we're going to be held to an account in a way that maybe the average member isn't because we are entrusted with teaching and speaking the right words of God in right application. So obviously when we look at James 3.1, there's a greater strictness in which we're going to come before the Lord and we're going to have to be accountable to him. Secondarily, which is a lesser but still very obvious, is we're going to be held to a greater strictness and accountability even to the congregation, right? Pastor, you said this the other day, but what, what are you doing, right? I mean, even those things of saying there's a lot of accountability, even for your pastors when it comes to preaching the word of God, uh, And I say that because I'm not just done with the pastor because the congregation is still accountable to the Word of God being preached and applied. Like you're accountable to applying the Word of God, right? You're accountable when you're not applying the Word of God to give an account and as necessary that the Bible would expose, reprove, and convict those things. And just the mediators of that is often your pastors who are opening up the Word of God and saying, what does the Bible say about that? And then conforming our lives to that. We talk about biblical authority. We understand that the congregation, they follow their pastors in so much as the pastors follow God's word. Right? And, and even this, right? It's, it's subtle enough for you to find areas that you, that you can figure out why you wouldn't follow your pastors. But you need to understand that your congregations are called to obey their leaders. Hebrews 13, 17. You should jot this one down. Hebrews 13, 17. Uh, in as much as your pastors are, are following God's word, your commitment is to obey them. Hebrews 13, 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As, and that's even that concept of overseer. Right? We get one of our words for the office of, of uh, pastor, of, of episkopos, presbyteros, uh, in, in the New Testament, of overseer and elders and pastors. They're keeping watch over your souls as those, listen to this, as those who will have to give an account. So again, as we shepherd this church, we're going to stand before God as ha- having to give an account for how we shepherded our congregation. And then there's a command to the congregants, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. I mean, even your call there is, as your pastors are teaching you according to God's Word, and even the uncomfortable times where rebuke and we expose things, and that here, if we wrap that up in Hebrews 13, 7, that you would submit that you would obey them they're keeping watch over your souls let them do this with joy and not with groaning right and them right them your pastors can you imagine your pastors just groaning all the time or like when they think oh i got to talk to them this week right? right like when we when we get in our pastors meeting it's like hey we got to talk to so and so this week and they're like well you do, no, you do it no you do it no you do it no you do it no you do it are they groaning about you like to think ah oh, somebody has to go talk to that person this week are you are you a topic of groaning because of the difficulty you are to lead in the congregation? That's convicting, isn't it? It's convicting to me. But Hebrews 13, 17 gives us an answer to that, and as much as your pastors are following God's Word, let's, let's joyfully submit to the teaching ministry of your church, because it is advantageous for you, right? There is no advantage in making your pastors grumble and and grown. But there's an advantage to having joyful pastors, isn't there? Of ones who are just zealous and eager to go out there and make disciples and walk with you in the work of ministry, equipping you. And like when, when your name comes across their screen, they're like, I got them. That's, they're coming to my office. And then we're fighting over it. And then you got to step in and expose your pastors for fighting each other uh, <laughs> because they want to they meet with you, right? I mean, think about that. Even that idea of doing it with joy, thinking rightly about that. But all of that, it comes with the sharp edges of Scripture. It comes with that rebuke when it comes to those who contradict the Word of God. And are your pastors accountable to that? Y- yes, right? We, just, we talked about that. Yes, there's a greater strictness. There's, you even have pastors who hold each other accountable. The congregation holds the pastors accountable to the right teaching of God's Word and the right living of God's Word, right? People always ask, you know, where is your, where is your accountability? I'm like, I'll look them in the face every Sunday at 9 and 11. Every Sunday, I give an account of my life before 600 people. And that's quite the accountability, right? And we have pastors, we have elders, we have the Word of God. Just like you do, we all share the same kinds of accountabilities. Our stewardships are just different, right? We all have the same accountability. The stewardship is different, which you might want to write that down as you think, what is the accountability for your pastors? We all have the same accountability. Their stewardship's different. They have a deposit entrusted to them to teach rightly the Word of God. Uh, and it's sharp for all of us, right? And that's really... Uh, the summation of point number three, on your notes, you should write this. You need to expect Bible teaching to come with sharp edges. Expect Bible teaching to come with sharp edges. When you hold your Bible, it should be something like this, right? Like you need to say, oof, this is a, this is a sharp object, handle with care, right? That, I mean, that's really the idea. When I have the Bible, it's meant to do something in my life. It's not meant to be a paperweight. It's meant to do something. We see that as we think about another Hebrews passage, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13, Another wonderful verse you can jot down there. Not a lot of flipping to passages this morning, but a lot of jotting them down. You can jot down Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Even the context of Hebrews 4, 12 through 13 is speaking of the danger of disobedience, particularly, uh, at least historically, as it's talking in light of those who rebelled in the Old Testament, the people of Israel who rebelled and wouldn't uh, obey God. But it's bringing it into the New Testament context of those who would disobey Christ and they need to turn to God, but they're unwilling. And within that context, you have this when it comes to the rebuke and, the, and being exposed by the Word of God. This is where you get the context for Hebrews four twelve and 13. For the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's piercing to the division of soul and of spirit and of joints and of marrow. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And then the final, verse 13, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Did you see that? That's a really wonderful capstone explanation of this whole sermon. That at the end of the day, we are all accountable to the sharp edges of Scripture. We're all going to be pierced by Scripture and we're all going to be naked and exposed to the eyes of God in whom we must all give an account according to how we have listened and obeyed God's word. And so with all of that being said, that, that is our goal. And that is our understanding as we look at our mission statement of teaching people to be like Christ. These things, they just sum it up. They tell us we are... our expositors of God's word. We must handle it rightly. We, was, we must hold firm to it. We must be able to teach people, in instruction, instructing them in sound doctrine, and even being able to expose and rebuke those who contradict it. Because at the end of the day, we're all accountable in the exact same way to Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. The last scripture, at least the last scripture I want you to have a picture of is that idea that we see in John 15, 2. In John 15, 2, it's that picture of Christ uh, being the vine, God being the vine dresser, and we're growing as offshoots of that. Particularly, I love you in that imagery for you. Like the scripture says, we're, off, we're, we're a wild olive branches and we're grafted in there. Like we're grafted into the branch because we were not a people of God as Gentiles and we were brought into the people of God and we were grafted in. We were, you know, it was cut, we were inserted, it was cared for, and now it's growing. And even those of us who are in Christ as Gentiles, John 15, 2 says the vine dresser who's God, he comes and, and he, he prunes and he molds and he chips away at our lives. And those things that don't bear fruit, he cuts off. And even those that bear fruit, he prunes them that they may bear more fruit. I mean, even that, you would hope that uh, as if God is cutting you in some real ways as a, as a vine, you hope that he's cutting you with some pretty sharp snips, right? You hope that that thing that he is snipping you with is sharp, Like, it gets it real quick, and it really gets it to where it'll carterize, it'll heal, and it'll produce more fruit. We can keep going with that illustration, but you get the point of saying Scripture is that sharp tool that God prunes, and He molds, and He chips away at our life, and it's meant to turn us to Him. It's meant to teach us to turn away from the world, turn away from our own desires, and turn to Him, seeking His kingdom first and His righteousness as we obey the Word of God. All right. I think as we think about pruning, as we think about molding, as we think about even the teaching of the Word of God, I think this is a wonderful time for us to share in the Lord's Supper, which at this time I'd love for our ushers to begin passing out the elements here of the Lord's Supper. As we think about the Lord's Supper, we understand that it is a a symbolic uh, ordinance for you and I to remember that... Christ had, had come incarnate that he would be the sacrifice for the people, that he came to live a perfect life. Uh, he came in full deity, which again, I, I don't. maybe we need to grasp that more and maybe it's just a good reminder over and over again to think Christ is sufficient. His death was efficacious for us. It was successful for us because of who he was and what he did. Do you understand that? Right, Who he was And what he did. Who he was, because he was God, he was sufficient not only for, if he were just human, you think about him being put on the cross, and somehow he made it through life perfect without blemish, and he dies without who he is, what he did was only efficacious for himself. Did you get that? Did you understand that? It would only be good for him, but because of who he was, that he was the incarnate God in human flesh. He became the representation of sin on the cross for all who would turn from their sins and place their trust in Christ. That's why we we talk a lot about the person and work of Jesus Christ, because both of them are inescapable if you understand the biblical gospel. It matters that he was God. His personhood matters when we think about the gospel. His work matters. It matters so much that he takes the Old Testament's view of the Passover, which was A foreshadowing of the true Passover that we see from Exodus and even as we see there in Matthew where he gathers the apostles and he says, hey, I I want this Passover that you've been taking, that that Israel's been taking throughout their history, I want to show you the real meaning of this and the real meaning is in me, that it's my body and my blood that's being poured out on behalf of you and it's called the new covenant and it's made in my blood. And all those who would trust in me, in my body, and my blood, in my personhood, that I am who I say that I am, and I did what I said I did, that you would have this privilege of taking this in remembrance of me until I come back and get you, and we eat of this anew in my Father's kingdom. That's what this is. This is an opportunity for us to remember a memorial of the truth of what Christ said what we have partaken of in reality through turning from our sins and placing our trust in Christ and what we are about to partake in symbolically as a reminder for that. And within that reminder, I want us to keep in mind that the Lord's Supper is for the believers, right? And I always put a fence around communion to think, listen, if you're not saved in this room, you've never turned from your sins, you've never placed your trust in Christ, I just, just withhold it. Just set it down, set it under your chair, maybe just cup it in your hands, don't Don't take it here. <coughs> Because this is a memorial of something that has happened and something that we have literally taken a part in through turning from our sins and placing our trust in Christ. And it's an opportunity for us to remember where we're going. And uh, if you're not saved in here, let this be a reminder for you of where the church is going and where the church is calling you today that you need to turn from your sins and place your trust in Christ so you may go there as well. And that idea even that marriage supper of the Lamb is when we're going to get together And we're going to eat this meal with Christ in heaven when he comes and gathers his church. And so with all that being said, as I've set the stage for for this meal, I want us to think of those four R's, that we would uh, remember the death of Christ, that we would remember what this is all about, uh, that we would reflect on that in our own life, reflect on who Christ is, what he's done on, on our behalf. And if necessary, and I imagine it is in some way or another, that you would do that third R, which is repent. Like Take this time to repent. Examine yourself, as Paul tells the Corinthians when they're taking the Lord's Supper. We're going to take some time here, and we're going to say, I'm going to repent. I'm going to ask forgiveness for some things, some ways I haven't thought rightly about God's stewardships in my life. And uh, then after that, I want you to rejoice, because we're doing this remembering a place that we're all going to go together to celebrate with Christ anew in His Father's kingdom. So I want to take a couple minutes. I want you to remember, reflect, repent if necessary, and I want us to rejoice together before you take the elements. So if you will, take some time and talk to the Lord. In Matthew 26, in verses 26 through 29, it says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew with you and my father's kingdom. Let may now take the Lord's Supper. you stand with me as we pray before we dismiss? God, we do rejoice as we think about that promise in verse 29, that I tell you that I will not drink, you will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when you drink it anew with us in your Father's kingdom. I pray, even as we think right about the teaching ministry of the church, that we remind ourselves of this, that it's our job to reach people for Christ, teach people to be like Christ and train people to serve Christ. And uh, as we remember the Lord's Supper, it's just that great reminder of saying, there's coming a day when you're coming to get us and you're bringing us with you. And it's all those who are under that new covenant of the blood of your son who will find themselves there at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And I pray that the teaching of our church reflects that clearly. There's a lot of things we could talk about, but there's very few things that mean the most and that we should focus our time looking at in your word and applying to our lives. So we thank you for your word. We thank you for the blood and the body of Christ on our behalf. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.